This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132. The Wharton India Economic Forum is going on today here in Philadelphia and on the campus. The conference designed to look at the current state of how the country's economy is and see where we are headed in terms of their next great areas of growth, as well as how we here in the United States can be part of that growth. We're going to talk with a variety of guests about these topics and, moreover, the majority of our show here today. Well, with a population of over 1.3 billion, the second largest on the planet, India has a unique position as an emerging economy. India went through incredible population growth between the mid-1970s and 2010, and it's now seen as a country of uh, very high importance for many countries to partner with on various elements of trade. We've already seen some U.S. retailers take a deeper dive, companies like Walmart and Amazon showing their interest, but where is the India-U.S. relationship headed? Marshall Bhutan is a well-known expert on India, the economy, and its place and importance in Asia, but also in the world. He's director of the Center for Advanced Study of India, based here at the University of Pennsylvania. He joins me in the studio, along with Mukul Pandya, who is a Knowledge Award and Editor-in-Chief. Marshall, great seeing you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. McCool, great to see you. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. So where do you see the relationship between the U.S. and India right now? Well, I think it's come off an extraordinary 20 years. Uh, The relationship in those 20 years since 1998 has been transformed almost beyond recognition. In fact, I'd like to say that no U.S. bilateral relationship in the world, certainly with another major country, has changed as much and for the good as has the U.S.-India relationship. And that's across all fronts, uh, but primarily in the security and defense areas. That's where the the most dramatic progress has been. Uh, And economic relations, also great progress. Huge increase in the the bilateral trade volumes. mostly with the U- with the US holding a deficit which uh, uh this administration is not happy about but it can it continues for now um FDI into India uh as you've already alluded to is has from the US has gone up very sharply um it's still a fraction of uh, US FDI both in terms of flows and stock uh from uh, that of say China um not to mention the developed countries in Europe uh, so that all is a strong portent for the future, for a positive, continuing positive trajectory. However, changes in policy, uh, particularly in the U.S., but also in India over the last year or two, uh, caused, some, caused for some worry. Uh, Prime Minister Modi has moved in somewhat more protectionist directions with his economic policy. Uh, nobody knows what he'll do uh, if uh, he's reelected come next April, May. Um, one hopes he backtracks on that, uh, but we can't be sure. Uh, you wrote a really f- interesting paper at, in the Asia Society's Policy Institute mm. in May 2017, and you recommended there that the Trump administration should make India a clear and strategic uh, diplomatic priority. Uh, in the year that has gone by, do you think that has happened? Short answer, yes. Um, 
And I give the Trump administration a lot of credit for moving rapidly, especially on the security and defense aspects of the relationship um, with the approval of the sale of the Sea Guardian aerial uh, vehicles, um, but also the most recent agreement between the U.S. and India, which will allow data sharing over secure channels between the two militaries directly. That's that's quite extraordinary. We're really getting close to our relationships with uh, with our NATO allies. Um, the the there has been one summit between the president and uh, Prime Minister Modi. Prime Minister Modi invited President Trump to to come to Delhi in January and be the chief guest at uh, India's Republic Day, which, the, for all I know, the president has not yet accepted. Um, I'm concerned about the pace of connections between the two of them. Um, these are two very strong leaders who have a potential to do a lot together, but they have to be able to spend some time with each other. Um, the the uh, So far, the administration's policies, uh, it's more America first, if you will, mercantilist policies, have not taken a heavy toll in the, in the actual conduct of U.S.-India economic relations. Uh, uh, as I said earlier, FDI remains uh, pretty strong. Uh, the trade relationship is about the same as it was a couple of years ago. Uh, but one begins to have some niggling worries about where it might be going from here. Uh, what are some of those worries? Well, as I said earlier, I, th- I think the principal worry is two on, bo- on both sides. One is that at some point the Trump administration will will actually uh, put into place a hard policies on, particularly on trade. Uh, the other related area that is concerned to many Indians, of course, is H one B visas. Right. Um, uh, so far, uh, we're seeing some. Uh, the administration has taken an approach where it's, it's indirectly trying to influence the number of H-1B visitors by making it impossible for their spouses to stay in the United States, by uh, not approving many more continuing employment visas. Uh, if they really double down on that kind of effort, then we could see some real damage. Uh, on the Indian side, as I mentioned, the, the prime minister has moved in some more protectionist directions, which yeah. I'm sure are concerned uh, of concern to U.S. companies. So. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. We got, you know, we got a political season here and a political <laughs> season coming up very soon in India, and that that causes a little bit of craziness on both sides. It, it is amazing to me sitting back here and, and looking at it and seeing some of the things that have that have developed within India over the last few years, and to see the growth and, and to to still have it referred to at times as kind of an emerging economy because yeah. of yeah. the fact the numbers of people that are there. But then when you hear about the fact that you still have you know, large portions of the country that still need to be electrified. You need to still bring a lot of services to that country. You do understand that that there is still a long way to go for India to be truly a transformative economy. No question. I mean, the real the real question is whether India can be in the next ten or fifteen years the next ten trillion dollar economy. Mm-hmm. That would be a great, very momentous for the world for the world economy in particular. Um, but yes, they have a lot of problems, and uh, the problems haven't—they aren't going away fast. A lot of people expected Prime Minister Modi in his first term to adopt a number of more of liberalizing policies, a second wave of big structural reforms, particularly on the supply side, mm-hmm. on land and labor, especially. Uh, but he hasn't done that. He's done taking the more politically safe course, uh, and they, he's certainly not taking that course right now, that, that the more uh, adventurous course right now. For the people that don't follow it as closely, I mentioned about 
companies like Walmart and Amazon mm-hmm. with, with Flipkart, and, and mm-hmm. I, that's one example. Mm-hmm. But why do you think it, it has taken this long, seemingly, to see this type of push on, on FDI going into going into India? Well, the policies weren't conducive. The regulations weren't conducive. We all remember it was only two or three years ago that India ranked something like 138 on the World Bank uh, Index of Ease of Doing Business. It's come up a lot, and most recently it's come up just it was just announced a few days ago by the World Bank. It's come up another 23 points and I think is now you know around 100. So <clears throat> that was understandable. But it is also indicative that most of this you know headline stuff about amazon and and other retailers walmart of course uh going into india these are sectors the retail sector is which which is very is one in which there's very light regulation overall mm-hmm. compared to the manufacturing sector the ease of especially in the digital age the ease of moving into india uh with and the retail sector is far greater and uh, when you start to see American companies investing in manufacturing in India or in logistics or in infrastructure, then you can sit up and take notice. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios here in Philadelphia, along with Mukul Panda, who's the editor-in-chief of Knowledge of Wharton, and also joining us, Marshall Bhutan, who is a director of the Center for the Advanced Study of India, as we talk about India as part of the uh, Wharton India Economic Forum here on the University of Pennsylvania campus today. So I was very interested in what you just said about the closeness that has developed between India and the U.S. on the defense side. Mm-hmm. A part of it, of course, it's, it's very true that India has been buying more and more of uh, U.S. defense products, but it's also shopping very actively around the world for defense uh, products. Some of these deals have been somewhat controversial, notably the one with France for the 36 fighter jets. Mm-hmm. Um, my question for you is, uh, given the political season that we are entering, uh, do you think the deal with uh, with the um, uh, salt on the Rafale jets mm-hmm. will make Mr. Modi as vulnerable as, say, the before deals, before steel was to Rah- Rahul Gandhi in the past? What's your assessment of the situation? Yeah, I would guess not. Um, I think that that um, that I mean, first of all, the, the Modi administration rightly has a uh, an excellent reputation for uh, greatly avoiding <laughs> reducing the amount of corruption, especially at the top. At, you know, at, in the prime minister's office, in the cabinet, in the, in the government of India, um, you know, lower down, there's probably still some going on. So I think he's not very vulnerable on those corruption issues. At some point, if some, you know, shocking details come to light about the, the Rafael fighter deal or others, then then people might reassess. But I don't think it's going to be an issue this time. But the, the, the big issue on defense acquisitions is the Russian sale of the S-400 mm-hmm. anti-missile, uh-huh. uh, anti-aerial, anti-aircraft missile system. Uh, which was just at least nominally approved when President Putin visited India in, in early October. This has a potential to be a great disruptor mm-hmm. of the U.S.-India relationship because yeah. it runs afoul of the sanctions on Russia placed there by Congress just a year ago. Um, it's a terrible acronym. It's something like CATSA. Mm-hmm. Um which requires the U.S. to sanction any entities in the world that that engage in major 
trans- uh, transactions with, with Russia. And uh, looking like the president will, will impose those sanctions. So is Russia, is Russia still the biggest supplier of arms to India? And what do you think will be the impact of this on the closeness that's been developing on the defense and security? Well, that's side? exactly my concern. I think it uh, would impact not only the U.S.-India defense relationship, but also the India-U.S. economic relationship. Right because it will sanction Indian financial entities from from dealing with you know dealing with US banks you know moving money just the very the basic stuff um, and no yes the, the Russia is still the principal in the aggregate the principal supplier by value but that's partly just legacy stuff from the past cuz you know, India is determined to retain its sovereignty uh, and to make its decisions about its national interests based only on those national interests and not on the wishes of another uh, government. Um, and that's, this is a, a recurrent problem in U.S.-India relations, which we moved away from but could be coming back. And that is when you have the United States uh, setting global policies yeah. that affect around the world and you, you, our allies we can expect to fall in line. India is not an ally, and for the foreseeable future, will will not be an ally of the United States. Uh, but, but does that, <clears throat> and with that relationship between the U.S. and India, if it does continue to go stronger, there would probably be an assumption that we could consider India an ally. And obviously, part of that is maybe you know uh, stopping that uh, that, that mm-hmm. partnership with Russia. But it, there is the possibility that they could be considered an ally down the road, correct? Well, there's a possibility. I wouldn't hold your breath. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, India has long, you know, it comes from the colonial past and India's, India's absolute determination to be self-determining as a nation. Yeah. Um, and plus, India's interests in some, some areas are different from those in the United States. It's, uh, and the circumstances that led to the creation of our post-World War II uh, alliances are not the same. They may be someday. Um, frankly, the key to that would be what, how China develops in China's relationships with the U.S. and India. Uh, and none of us wishes for the kind of confrontation that would produce a situation in which an alliance would be thought of on both sides because they would be pretty dire. I'm very glad you mentioned China because uh, that was just what I was going to ask you about. Uh, what do you think uh, are the chances of the U.S.? favoring an expanding role for India in in Asia overall. Uh, Do you think India is responding adequately to China's One Belt, One Road initiative, or even more importantly, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor Project? Mm -hmm. Uh, What should be India doing to respond, and what should be American role uh, vis-a-vis India in in these situations? Well, going back to Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State, and even in some respects before that, the United States has actually been urging India, encouraging India, even occasionally attempting to push India a little bit to take a more active role in the Asia-Pacific, what used to be called the Asia-Pacific region. Um, India, the, the, the key turning point was a meeting between Prime Minister Modi uh, and President Obama, uh, I think it was 2010, something like that, uh, where they signed a joint statement uh, on a vision of the Asia-Pacific. That was very, 
very positive move in this direction. It's a statement of principle. It's not a statement of actual policy and actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the U.S. has opened up its uh, its defense storehouse to India, partly with that in mind. Um, India has been cautious about this, and most recently, for instance, uh, India withdrew from the so-called Quad exercises, which bring together the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. Uh, India chose not to do that in order not to provoke China. So India is playing a, a very cautious role, and I would say right now even more cautious. They look at President Trump's uh, mercurial nature uh, and somewhat contradictory policies and statements, and um, they're a little concerned about how this might work for them. So they're not going to give up their independence of action. Longer term, there's no question that India is going to be more active in the Asia-Pacific. It has to be for its own interest. And in fact, we now call this so-called Asia-Pacific region is now the Indo-Pacific region. That's official <laughs> policy in the United States. Uh- the next year India face you refer to the fact that India is facing a parliamentary election next year. And in your paper last uh, in May, you had uh, mentioned that you thought Mr. Modi was uh, very likely to win. Is that still your assessment or do you ha- have, have your views changed? Uh, it's still my assessment provided you take out the very. Okay. I think he is still <laughs> likely to win. Um, he's um, He's the only... Um, politician in all of India on the national stage who can command attention and audience. Um, and he has an ex- supremely efficient and extensive political operation that's never stopped running, you know, right down to the polling place. Um, right. uh, I was in India last in July, and, you know, the talk then was still very, very much weighted on the side of the prime minister returning to office, perhaps with a reduced majority in the parliament, Mm -hmm. uh, which will tie his hands a little bit. Um, But, you know, the Indian electorate is quite amazing. Uh, You know, in in India, all you need to do is to be 18 and you're a voter. You don't have to all of this registration stuff. It has a far better franchise than the United States. I wish we could have that system here. It makes all the sense in the world, but we're not going to have it during the present times. Um, And uh, the Indian electorate, in its wisdom, uh, can throw people out on the drop of a hat um, and has done uh, with great surprise to everybody else. So I, I never make definite predictions about <laughs> Indian elections. It's, 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 it's a very dangerous thing to do. When you look at, at the last few years for India, what has it been that this government has done to really try and drive the growth that, that it probably needs to see in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, most importantly, in the f- past four and a half years, this the Modi government has greatly reduced regulations uh, insofar as the federal government or central government in India can do. Because remember that India, like ours, is a federal system. Right. And you have 29 states uh, and and several territories that that just don't do your bidding, right? And um, so you, when you, this uh, deregulation push has to extend down into ultimately the state levels and the and the local levels. And so it's, but it's still never an important initiative. Secondly, 
He has invested a lot of money in, particularly in transportation infrastructure, particularly in roads. I was in India in January, and part of India I haven't been in for ten years, and I was amazed at at where at where the roads go. The, the third thing is that he has, uh, uh, up till now, he has conducted India's macroeconomic policy with continuing attention to the twin deficits. Uh, to both the trade deficit and or the current account deficit more broadly and more importantly for India, the Indian fiscal deficit and been pretty uh, strict about keeping it certainly below 4%. Now we read that the Modi government is attempting to influence the Reserve Bank of India right? Uh, to, in fact, lower its rates and in other ways um, – lessen its standards for bank lending in the hope that that'll give a boost to the economy. By the way, this is a this is something that tells us that the prime minister and his key lieutenants, political lieutenants are concerned about this election. Right. He right. wouldn't be risking his international reputation and a further drop in the rupee which has dropped now what 30% in the last couple of months. Um if he didn't feel it was really he needed some, another boost on the economic front to get reelected. So that's that's where I think things are right now. We mentioned at the top your work uh, with the Center for Advanced Study of India. Uh, what are, are some of the projects that you're doing over there uh, currently, and how do they potentially fit into this burgeoning relationship between the United States and India? Sure. Um, well, first, let me say generally that the CASI, as we call it, the Center for the Advanced Study of India, is an absolutely unique institution, entity, not only within Penn, um, but also, frankly, among all U.S. universities, in that it is the only university-based center devoted exclusively to research, high-quality social science research on on India's politics, economy, society, and international relations. Uh, and furthermore, it conducts that research, selects and conducts that research in a way that's m- attentive to India's policy environment. What are the things that can be helpful? So over the years, for instance, India's done a lot of work on Dalit entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. path-breaking work uh, that nobody else had done to help develop an entrepreneurial culture for for Dalits, uh, that used to be called untouchables or hardens. Um It's done a lot of work on migration within India and between India and the world. And our former director at Cassie, Devish Kapoor, uh, just gave a very, very uh, uh, f- uh, important speech to the Reserve Bank of India on the impact of migration on the Indian economy. It's done a lot of, it's doing work now on agriculture and the agricultural economy because India's agricultural sector is now the centerpiece of its poverty problem. Uh, somewhere between 50 and 60% of India's poor are farmers. Uh, the average holding size is about two acres, believe it or not. I think the average holding size in the United States of American farmers is something a 1,000 acres. Um, so we, a lot of policy-related work that Cassie's carried out, and very uniquely. Part of a larger, now happy, happily in a larger pen push on India, yeah. but this is the only part of India, that, of the Ken, that produces research that's directly relevant to today's problems in India. 
Great having you here today, Marshall. Thank you very much for your time. Delighted to be here. Thank, Thank you, McCool. You. Thank you for coming over. Thanks very much, Dan. Marshall Bhutan, Director of the Center for Advanced Study of India, based here at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you very much for him stopping by, and also to uh, Mukul Pandev, who is the uh, Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton. Well, we've talked on this show about the growing wave of blockchain firms and the role that many of them may have in the uh, in the months and years to come, along with cryptocurrency. Many experts in the area believe that we will see its adoption in the next several years, and it will significantly change business and payment processes. Kavita Gupta is the founding managing partner of Consensus Ventures, a firm looking to invest in the Ethereum blockchain, and she joins us here in studio as part of the Wharton India Economic Forum. Nice meeting you. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Why the interest in Ethereum? And I guess to a degree, for those that, that don't follow this closely, give us a little understanding better of what Ethereum is and how it plays into blockchain. Uh, Ethereum was started by Vitalik and Joseph Lubin, uh, along with a couple of other founders very early on in 2014. The idea was that Bitcoin did prove that the cross-border transaction can happen within two seconds to five seconds of settlement. Now, what about the technology? The technology under this with distributed ledger was way more powerful than just using it for the payment transaction method. And that's what drove Vitalik to write his first white paper uh, on Ethereum, which is to create smart contracts which are pre-approved, have different conditions, which can be used to settle not only uh, not only transactions, but any sort of logic. So if I want to do land titling, if I want to do uh, sort of supply chain, logistics, anything which I can do in a decentralized manner, way more security, that if I go and hack any of my software today or my database, it's one spot, maybe five passwords or cryptography. But imagine if all your data is on 5,000 nodes, you're still going to get a small hash of your data if somebody gets to hack on it. So how do, you, how do we do it with more security, more privacy, and within two to three seconds of settlement time. And right. that's what drove Ethereum to come. And now why we are bullish on Ethereum is it's not only one of the first player, but has one of the biggest developer community already early on to build products which are live around the world today. Is it the expectation that you're going to see a significant adoption of all of this type of technology? I mean, you're starting to see it to a degree already, but we're really at the tip of the iceberg at this point because of the fact, as you said, and the security part of it I find interesting because in this day and age, security of any kind is seemingly the foremost concern of so many businesses right now, especially ones that that are tied to the Internet and, and transfer of either information or funds or whatever. Um, absolutely. Like, I think we have all have agreed out here in last couple of years that our Privacy and security is not in our hand anymore as soon as we go on Internet, whether we are going on Facebook or Amazon or any of those places. Now, how do we make sure, even if we are giving away our name and data, how do we make sure we are knowingly doing it and we are the part of that monetized process? I may still like my Amazon price and I want customized results so that I can make a better choice on my shopping, but I want to know what sort of data is going and what are the third parties it's going to. And blockchain actually enables it because every time an information passed through from my ledger to somewhere mm -hmm. using my sovereign identity, those I can see every metrics of where my data went. So 
Today we are seeing blockchain being used in vote, voting. It's been uh, tested in Boston. It's been getting tested uh-huh. in Africa, in India. Uh, from voting to supply chain has become one of the biggest industry where it is being used. Uh, we have one of our projects, Viant, which basically use tuna fish to track down all the way from gaming to all the way to your plate. Wow. Fishing. And they successfully have been able to do it. We have been using land titling records. Not only I recently we are working with India to do that project, but also South Africa is doing a project. A lot of native communities are doing that project for uh, to make sure that their land belongs to the community instead of mineral industry or big factories coming in and claiming it from the government. So financial and in- it all started with financial industry yeah. to see that. Why do I why why should it take three days for me to send an inter country or interatlantic payment and it should take three days or four days to settle? If my if I am a KYC account, the other person is a KYC account, we are paying taxes, we are in good shape, it should take two to five seconds to settle. What I find amazing then is where India is concerned, as we talked about early in the show, is the fact that this is still even though you have 1.3 billion people in this country, there are so many pieces of it that are still emerging at this point. And obviously part of what will be built out in the years to come will be the use of blockchain in India, correct? Absolutely. But India is already ahead. Okay. India is one of the countries which is a prime minister has used in his speeches that blockchain, the privacy and the security and the trustworthiness is what we need. Uh, the prime minister advisory office, Niti Aayog, is already doing a couple of uh, POCs on blockchain. Regional governments like Telangana, uh, Andhra Pradesh, uh, Karnataka, etc. very bullish on blockchain. Um, I think... India is going and adopting blockchain as in Africa we saw instead of going to landlines they directly moved to mobile technology. Right. So it is it's in a very advantageous position because if you already have your security like 1.3 billion people as you said using their identity solution Aadhaar right now in India Aadhaara uh, they can directly do it on blockchain. So they have a yeah. great opportunity to move the first time the SS create the SSN of India and directly have the world class security. So then, what's been the impact of, of having blockchain in the mix in the operation of, of the Indian culture over the last couple of years? Uh, the transparency part. So one of the things which I really love the way politicians are thinking uh, is. There are so many schemes around the world where government gives us. How many of them do we really know we are applicable or we are not applicable to? Yeah. So if you have one place portal where you can see based on your tax return, these are the different schemes. Your whole family is applicable. Did you claim it or you didn't claim it? And where did the real money go if somebody promised $15 billion for a particular scheme? Did it really go to people? That whole transparency is what going to drive, what's going to take out a corruption in a lot of countries around the world. You're joined here in studio by Kavita Gupta, who's founding managing partner of Consensus Ventures. She is here as part of the uh, Wharton India Economic Forum. I'll touch on that for a second. Uh, being here part uh, of this forum, what does it mean for you, not only a, as as a business person, but to see the growth of India and where it is headed right now? Um, as an Indian, it's very proud, right? It's a very proud moment when you come to some of the most distinguished universities around the world who are paying attention not only how the economic development is going, but supporting the Indian community around them to learn and be part of that ecosystem. Uh, so for me as an individual, it was a great honor to come back and speak or represent a part of it as an Indian 
at an Indian platform. Mm -hmm. But also, I think all the students around Wharton, it's a great opportunity for them uh, to learn what is next happening. And when they make their career moves after an year or two year, uh, they know who are the people or the industries to go and associate it with taking the Wharton flag to the next level. How do you compare the, the use of blockchain in India so far in comparison to what you see here in the United States? Because there's still questions, concerns, not necessarily about blockchain, but really about cryptocurrency in general. And, and I think there's a hesitancy here in the United States. It, it, it feels like from what you're saying, there's not really that hesitancy right now in India over it. Uh, no. So India, actually, cryptocurrency is banned in India. Yeah. you uh, That's illegal in a lot of other countries, right? right. So I would like to uh, completely underline that cryptocurrency and blockchain are completely yep. two different things. Yep. So you can use Ethereum. You don't have to use cryptocurrency. Right. So most of the supply chain, land titling solutions, etc., are a private blockchain solution. Correct. You don't need to use Ether on it. Right. There's no finance, financial component to it at no. all. Correct. Yeah. So uh, blockchain as a technology is what's getting adapted by people around the world. Yeah. But Ether as a currency may or may not. Now, over time, we all going to realize that whether it's Ether, whether it's Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, whatever it is, whatever makes life easy by having a cross-border transaction in a failed country where t if you wake up in Cuba maybe tomorrow and your whole currency has disappeared and you're a dollarized currency, having some international currency like this, which is backed with so many other things, can save people's life, whether it's in refugee mechanism or anything. So I think that knowledge will slowly, slowly come. Right. As we see, there was a big, big, big bubble last year and now it's getting normalized. So people will take time and it will happen. But blockchain technology as a tech part is not questionable. Facebook, Amazon, Google, every big company is paying attention. To so it. then in, in a region like Africa, as you mentioned, which is you know now more mobile than it is anything else, how is blockchain really making that difference now? Because in parts of Africa, that's where you expect to see that, that next level of development over the next few years. Absolutely. Africa actually come up with very interesting creative areas to use blockchain. For an example, a um, lot of people in South Africa are developing blockchain solutions for mining solution. Right. Because government wants to see the transparency. Then the human rights groups are using blockchain solution to actually track down uh, how much people are getting paid and what's their human condition in every labor, different labor situation. Right. Um, somebody is using in Nigeria you, IoT on blockchain to transparently have quantitative measurement of how river deltas are getting clean and what is the value of that. So there are a lot of creative solutions are coming. At the end of the day, it's traceability, transparency, privacy, security, and verification. If those you can use any of any one or five of those things together yeah. and create a solution around it. it, it becomes and going back to the security part of it for a second, it becomes very important, especially with some of those transactions, whether it be land titling, whatever it might be, to be able to do them in a secure fashion. There may not be as much of, of an interest from outside entities, people that are looking to to hack and and, and do damage because the financial part of it may not necessarily be there, but still having the security part of it when you're doing a transaction is still very important today. Absolutely. I mean, you can do your transaction in uh, whether you do your transaction using just, using just the technology part, but 
the blockchain security along with cryptography i'm not saying it's 100% unhackable there's no no guarantee on 100% right. but it is definitely 500% better than the solutions which exist today so i i'll give an example i was having this conversation in another very big company i don't feel comfortable every time when i travel around the world let's say i'm in russia to give my license just to check into the hotel sure yeah. why does a hotel registrar needs my whole driving license or my passport copies that just too much information about me right. ready to share when i'm paying something they should so how do we create a sovereign identity on blockchain where they get to get the information which is needed without having photocopies of my whole personal data yeah Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming over today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kavita Gupta, founding managing partner with Consensus Ventures. Well, our next guest is involved in the ed tech space with his startup, Yellow Dig. But his connection is through communication. When students go off to college, their professor, in many cases, will set up groups on social media so that students can discuss topics from that particular course. The problem with that tends to be that the company sharing each student's data with third-party companies. And as we have seen in the last few months, there's more and more backlash against social media companies involved in that practice. Shanuk Roy is founder of Yellow Dig, and he joins us now in studio. Nice meeting you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. I, I guess let's start with the idea of how Yellow Dig came into, into being. Yes, no, that's that's the, the the main question, and I'm glad that you mentioned about social media. I talked about Facebook and all the backlash um, that those kind of companies are getting. Um, you know, when I was uh, starting Yellowdig about four years back, you know, imagine that time Facebook just went public. Uh, you know, we all realized that social is no longer just a, a small thing out there, but it's a mainstream segment or industry almost. Uh, so many companies that are being formed. Yeah. Um, one thing that I uh, I was quite passionate about is I saw the value of platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn for connecting people so that people can learn from one another. Yeah. But as you can imagine, that's not Facebook's mission. Their mission is to sell more ads. Yep. So what I wanted to do is that take the concept of social but apply, for, apply from a learning standpoint, which I really believed in. And as a result, I mean, we can talk about it, is that data privacy is super important for us yeah. because we will need to build a trust that often lacks in public social media today. What is it about the the, the, the space that you're in? And, and you're using Yellow Dig on college campuses right now. What was it that, that those two elements seem to fit perfectly together then? Yes. So, uh, so the one in one side, if you think about social or internet, you know that's growing rapidly. You know, Facebook has more than a billion users, so people know what social is. People intuitively understand the value of connecting with one another and sharing. Um, however, if you think about college campuses, the technology that most universities use today are pretty backdated. Like the kind of tools that are still there, hmm. you know, if you talk to a student today, they will say, oh my God, I mean, I spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get into this beautiful <laughs> university and I'm using these tools from like, you know, probably like tw- a decade back. Yeah. So we thought that, you know, the technology stack for the future has to be around things that students are already using, like Facebook, yeah. the engagement side of it, but it needs to apply to the learning context. So that's what we did. We took the, you know, if you imagine the, the, you know, Facebook or Pinterest or you know, Snapchat, but applied for learning 
where within a classroom, if you're discussing, let's say you're taking a course on finance, yeah. and you know there are all sorts of things happening on a daily basis that you want to talk about, you want to share, you want to discuss and debate, which you know you probably may not want to do on Facebook because you know sure. all sorts of things can happen because of that. Yeah. But you want a platform for that. That's what Yellowdig is. Um, and we are right now. I mean, just to give you a sense, we are kind of you know in contract with about thirty-five universities in the U.S. who are using our platform for. Yeah. Online courses, blended courses, and things like that. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The unloading in our studios here in Philadelphia as we are talking with people that are involved in the Wharton India Economic Forum, which is here on the University of Pennsylvania campus here today. So then you're based here in Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia area, and as you mentioned, 35 or so universities are using this platform right now. How expansive do you think it can be? I mean, obviously, if you have 35 universities, there's a there's a level of trust, which is obviously another key component uh, in social media today. They, they have a trustworthy source of being able to communicate and, and talk about their coursework or talk about uh, things with their professor in a, in a private uh, or relatively private platform. That's right. And, you know, I, I believe, you know, this could be, Pretty expansive because if you think about the whole U.S. or international, like education is one of those sectors that hasn't been innovated yet enough from a technology standpoint. Right. Uh, we are one of those early companies which are we feel that we are the forefront of that movement. Now, it's not just technology; it's also a huge change management effort to make sure that professors and universities who have been around for like hundreds of years adopt technology and are comfortable. So. When we work with a school, like we work with like UPenn is a customer of us, Harvard is a customer of us, you know, MIT is a customer of us, um, you know, we, we ensure that you know, we are not only just giving them the tool and hope that you know, it's a Facebook and just use it, mm-hmm. but actually work with the professors, work with their designers to really make sure that it's kind of integrated into the university ecosystem. So from an integration standpoint, from a course design standpoint, we spend a lot of time. I would think that when, when you're talking about that kind of a relationship, it's almost more important to to work with the professors on this to have them involved than it would be the students because the students may have that that natural affinity for these types of platforms to begin with. It may not necessarily be as much the case with the professors. That is exactly right. I mean, we find again and again that students get it. They see a platform which just feels like very easy to use. They like to use it. They get it. Yeah. Professors, you know, in some cases, they have their certain ways of doing things. Sometimes they're getting used to new technology and especially yeah. online technologies. So we spend a whole lot of time to kind of really train them, talk to them, show them data from our platform to kind of really show that it's actually making a difference. Uh, in the student's learning process. So uh, that's where I would say most of our energy goes when we kind of deploy these technologies. Does the benefit uh, of having more college online, does that help with the understanding by professors and the adoption of wanting to to use a platform like Yellowdig? Absolutely. I I would say that is the biggest trend we are riding on right now. Um, If you think about online, um, I think I was looking at some numbers. Last year, almost one-third of the students who took a master's level course took it online. Yeah. And that number is going to be half in probably another two or three years. So 
people like online as a channel to deliver education to a broader audience at a at a fraction of a cost right what it costs to be on campus is a growing segment and uh, naturally there is a scope for innovation people are looking for new things new ways of doing things and which is where we are finding our early adopters in some sense to kind of you know take our technology and use it in an online setting yeah. if they like it then we'll say you know what why don't i use it in my university class as well and from what i understand in reading about this it, when people use this when they use yellow dig uh, in terms of the communication, it could be a wide range of different kind of information formats. You could, you know, post videos on there if you need to. You could post code on there if if that was the particular type of course that, that you were working with. So it's it's it has a wide range of applications in the university setting. That's right. So you know, one of our core values is to bring in knowledge from a variety of sources. As we know, you know, what used to be when I went to grad school, you know. The only way I used to get things is by by getting books from the library. Yeah. Today I just yeah. go to Google and search. I want to learn about Bitcoin or whatever. I just search and get all these sources. So there are so many. Of these could be videos or audios or you know articles or blogs. Yeah. We want all of that to be part of the process because that's why we feel true learning happens. You know, because you're bringing in all these real world concepts and applying in things that you're learning in the classroom. Yeah. Um, and and that, do, that 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 is one of the reasons Yellow Dig is liked by our you know students and professors. Shanak Roy is the founder of Yellow Dig. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM one thirty two Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. All right, I'm going to take you back for a second. As as somebody developing a startup, what were the challenges that you had in the process going on? Because seemingly any person, it feels like, in talking with a variety of of entrepreneurs doing startups that you run into bumps along the way there it this is not ever a seamless process to be able to to go from start to to where you are right now yes so you know for us you know i i, I talk to so many other founders as well i mean we we all have challenges um, you know that's part of being a building a uh, startup for me i feel uh, especially the education space um it's a long game you know, we I talk to founders who are in the consumer space. You know, things happen fast. There are trends you catch on. You build a company within a year or two. Right. Education is a long game because you have people who are protecting institutions. So it's a big change management process. So for me, it's a long game. For me, it's uh, about tenacity. You know, there will be ups and downs. But as long as we are you know, making progress in the right direction <laughs> and hopefully the momentum is building as we go forward, yeah. uh, that's it for us. Uh, you, know, you know, for us, you know, it probably takes 10 years to build a real company, uh, which is innovating in this space, which is quite tough. But you're also talking about processes that in some cases with some schools have been in place for 100 years, 125 years. It is truly, totally different than what you would see in, in pretty much any side of retail or any other business right now. That's absolutely right. So I would say that is something any founder, anybody who is starting a business in education, my advice is think of this as a long game because it's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Tenacity is very important. Um, and and what, what the, the, good, the good news is that there's a lot of change happening right now. There's a lot of talk of disruption of education, online coming in, students are worried about debt and all those things. So people are looking for solutions. So if you have a good story and if you have somebody who is listening to you and somebody is willing to be a champion of that, yeah. I think there is a good opportunity to build a business now. Do you think that – I mean, obviously, when you're talking about college, you're talking about young adults that are out in the world realistically for the first time. 
it seems like that that this type of format really is suited for that type of landscape right now. And, and I ask that because could you even envision this maybe even playing out to a degree at the high school level because of how high school education is developing and changing and the relationship between teacher and student? Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the questions we often get is that how do you train a high school student for being ready for college. Right. And then you get to get them ready for a, a career. So, you know, it's a continuum, right? So I think, you know, applying these concepts is like going downwards to high school until, you know, corporate learning. There are opportunities. We started with, uh, you know, higher education, but we are definitely interested in all those areas. Shanak Roy is the founder of Yellow Dig. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Now, I, I read also that I guess... In the process of Yellow Dig, you're also using Amazon Web Services with their servers and such so that you can also adapt this to smartphone use as well, correct? Oh, that's right. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so AWS is, you know, honestly one of the biggest innovations that has happened to help startups like us. You know, they are infrastructure as a service, so we don't have to worry about as we are scaling. So just to give you some context, like we are adding about like five to 10,000 students a month who are using wow. our platform. How do we scale so fast by AWS? It's just click off a button. We add servers as we go. Uh, it helps us in that sense. And from a smartphone standpoint, yeah, it helps us to kind of all sorts of you know devices and mm. all sorts of data management. There are lots of regulations in the space that we have to abide by. Like FERPA is one of them. ADA is another. AWS has services that helps us to kind of meet those standards much more easily. How do you build out that relationship with a particular university? We start small. We typically go and look for one champion, one department to use our product. We do a smaller pilot for about six months. At the end of the pilot, we go back with the data. We just show them that, hey, this you did this, and this is what happened. And we also do surveys of the students. And after that, we try to find the right champion. So that's how we have grown. Um, you know, all the university customers that we have, we all started very small. But now we have relationships at a much higher level. So, our, you know, like, for example, Arizona State University has the largest online program in the country. Yeah. They heavily use us uh, for their online co courses. Uh, and that relationship has taken time over three years to kind of build that up. How, how do you see potentially the build out of this outside of the United States? Is that an option for you down the road? And obviously you have to, you know, probably continue to build out a little bit as well, too. That's right. So we do have our first customer we signed from uh, Singapore. And we have some conversations happening in different parts of the world now. So we're right. getting inbound requests because, you know, a lot of universities abroad follow the American model from right. a teaching standpoint. So once they know our technology was adopted here, it's a good sign for them. Right. That's happening. Uh, you know, we are also using in various online courses and MOOCs, massive online courses. Yeah. Uh, and those students are from anywhere in the world. A lot of our customers come from referrals. They use up technology in some school and they say, I like it. I want to use it in my school. So that's how we are getting a lot of our, uh, you know, inbound requests, and that's how we are pretty much building the company right now. Can you see areas uh, that obviously you have this platform already, but can you see even areas within what you've done already that that you're thinking this, here's another way I can enhance this process, I can enhance this experience for the student, for the teacher, to improve it even further? Yeah, there are many ways. I mean, I think the the, the one of the big ways we find is this: that as if you think about equity in learning. We have to get live in a world where one teacher can teach thousands of students. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you can open up one Wharton professor, and I know that there are a lot of online, uh, you know, MOOCs and things like that are happening through Wharton and sure, elsewhere. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But how do you engage a group of a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand students? 
you need technology where you can help the people can talk to each other and they get right. more engaged. I think that's a big area for us to focus on as the world is moving in that direction where you have bigger and bigger courses. Great meeting you. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you very much, Dan. Welcome back to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney here in their studios in Philadelphia, hour number two of our show as we continue a look at the Wharton India Economic Forum and some of the amazing things going on with people involved in that space as well. We have talked quite a bit in past and on this show already today about the role that education may play in terms of the growth of, uh, of uh, people around the world. Prasanna Krishnan is the founder and chief product officer for SmartyPal, a site that is involved specifically in uh, smarter learning and real impact, as the company says. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. And Mukul Panda, editor-in-chief of Knowledge Award, and joining me once again here to uh, to talk about uh, about SmartyPal. Uh, I guess let's start with the, the, the basis of how SmartyPal started and, and where it came to you in terms of the thought process in Genesis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so SmartyPal was really born out of my sort of experiences as a parent, um, as well as having um, sort of been an investor in the VC world looking at, you know, education investments uh, in the U.S. and in India. Um, and really the observation was that if you look at kids today, they're all drawn to screens and, you know, devices that they can interact with. Um, and yet a lot of what existed out there in terms of educational content was either really boring, all you can do is flip pages on a screen, or they were engaging and fun, but they were angry birds. So, you know, it wasn't educationally relevant. Um, and so my vision with starting SmartyPal was really leveraging technology to make the process of learning both more fun and engaging, but also more effective. How, how does SmartyPal do that? Great question. Um, so the way we do that is through having interactive elements or games um, that um, that's part of what we built with our technology, the ability to create interactive elements in games um, that can be customized with different educational material. Um, and these games make the process of learning more fun, but they also gather data that feeds into the second part of our technology, which is an adaptive learning engine that takes the data um, of your interactions with the game to figure out sort of where you should be spending more time learning. So did you uh, ha go through a sort of thought process of choosing to become an entrepreneur rather than having a, a career? I mean, I, I know you had worked for McKinsey and you had, you know, uh, 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 quite a corporate role before. What, what was, was that, that thought process and decision process like? Yeah, absolutely. So my uh, sort of past life before SmartyPal um, was, you know, a combination of three things. I had been in, in product and business exec roles at large tech companies like Microsoft and Comcast, um, at, at venture-backed startups, uh, MongoDB and JetSetter in New York, which was acquired by TripAdvisor. Um, and then also I was in VC at uh, Draper Fisher Jurvetson, investing in early stage uh, tech companies. Um, and so for me, really, the, the reason for starting a company, I think, goes back to um, – Two things. One is, is it a space that I feel so passionately about that, uh, that you know, uh, I I want to really go in and do something new here that can make a difference? And for me, that was the driving force behind wanting to become an entrepreneur. Um, and I think that's sort of my, uh, you know, even if I look back at all of my experiences, my lesson learned is really, do you... What the, the main sign for whether you want to go start up on your own is the key question to ask yourself is, do I want to do this, um, even if there isn't a big financial outcome? Um, and if the answer to that question is yes, then you should be an entrepreneur. So where where is the expansion for for a company like SmartyPal right now 
when you're talking about the ed tech space at, the, at this point, which seemingly is innovating, it feels like, almost uh, almost every week at this point. Yeah, really, that is absolutely true. Um, you know, we've been primarily focused on the K-12 side of education, so the K through 12. Um, and, and for us, um, you know, we've, we're working with publishers in the U.S. who um, sell books and educational material to schools. Uh, but I think really the big opportunity is international um, because if you look at kind of the population demographics as well as the huge spend in education in China and India and other international places, I think that's the big opportunity for us, uh, specifically around language learning and, and so on. Now, did you uh, look at any uh, big incumbent company that uh, uh, would have been disrupted by by the kind of work that you're trying to do? And what was your competitive assessment of the market? And how did you come up with your strategy? Right. Um, of course, when you look at education, you know, the big incumbents are the big publishers, um, you know, folks like <coughs> Pearson Scholastic and so on, who have textbooks and trying to increasingly play in the uh electronic learning space, um, they would be the big incumbents. And I think the reason as a startup, we felt we had an opportunity and actually we do actually sell to publishers. So, they, you know, in our in our um, as we went to market, they became our customer and partner. Um, but uh, I think the reason we had an advantage was we were really approaching this from the perspective of creating interactive and ex- uh, engaging games, uh, which was not sort of something that they were primarily focused on. Uh, one of the biggest challenges that all startups face is uh, choosing the initial team. Uh, how did you think through that process? How did you decide who's the right group of people to work with in the beginning and help us talk talk us through that process? Right, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think um, that is very important, the key, you know, initial founders and the key team members. Um, I was fortunate that my husband, who's also a professor at Wharton, was in involved early on, and he, having an education background himself, he was passionate about it, and you know he was involved as a as a co-founder. Um, but my other co-founders uh, were both classmates, so I had the opportunity to have worked with them, and I knew their style of working, um, which was which was really important. And you know, Lakshmi, for example, came on and and worked with uh, the company, um, and and we really got a chance to work together again beyond just being classmates. Um, so I think that key having that kind of chemistry and that you know fit with the founders um, is really important and then for me the other important thing was are they really passionate about the vision of what we are trying to do here because invariably as an early stage startup you're going to go through ups and downs um, and you know if someone's doing it because they care about the vision then they will you know ride with you through that journey so then what do you think that that vision is for a company like smarty pal in that ed tech space what do you envision this company being five years down the road maybe even ten that's a uh, yeah interesting question, especially with you know the landscape changing so much. I mean, our vision has always been making learning more engaging and more effective. Um, and and so my vision would be to you know offer this across uh, subject areas and grade levels. Um, and and really the learning being more fun and more engaging is not just something that you want you know just for little kids or just for big kids. It's for right. everyone, lifelong right. learners as well. Because realistically, because of the element of technology, even technology at times can be boring if you don't do it in the right right manner. Absolutely. So there has to be that that connection with the student at, at whatever level it is, whether it's in the kindergarten level, third grade, seventh grade, high school as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, I think that 
you know, one thing we, we focus a lot on is both, is this engaging to the students? So we look at metrics on how much are they engaged, how much do they use the uh, games and apps, but we also then look at, is this having an uh, improvement in learning? So, you know, there was an independent study that we did with researchers who, who tried to measure that, and we were thrilled to see that it actually improved learning outcomes twofold, and yeah. it was also more engaging, twofold more engaging. Now, in addition to choosing the right team, the other issue that every startup deals with is uh, raising capital. Yeah. Uh, how did you address that challenge and what do you think are some of the lessons that other entrepreneurs can learn from your experience? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the interesting things is having been um, an investor myself in the past, I was not in a hurry to raise typical venture money um, mm-hmm. because I felt that, uh, you know, I wanted to go out there and really learn from the market and improve before I did that. Um, we were fortunate to receive a grant from the U.S. National Science Foundation, um, mm-hmm. which was close to a, a million. Um, and, um, you know, that was also a great validation of our technology because the NSF invests in companies with sort of really innovative technology. Um, so that was really helpful in terms of building the product. And then we raised a seed round um, that included, uh, you know, a few folks with really strong uh, media connections like Bruce Hack, who is a vice chairman of Activision Blizzard. So, you know, which made World of Warcraft, which is the highest selling video game ever. So great to have sort of, you know, experts like him endorse us. So we haven't yet raised a large venture round. Um, and, uh, and you know, at this point, we're in fact looking at sort of strategic partnerships with the publishers we're working with, and we might continue down that route rather than raising a large uh, venture round. What are some of the pros and cons of going the venture uh, route? Yeah, I think, you know, the... Um, the big pro with going the venture route is, of course, you can get more capital early on, um, which allows you to scale and grow really fast, um, go to market faster and outspend your competitors. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Um, I think the um, you know the, the flip side of that is um, is also that you know venture fundraising takes a lot of time um, away from running the business, um, and also not every business and every market is ideal for for venture investors. And I think edtech is one of those spaces where there are few investors who focus on edtech, but by and large because of the way edtech works in terms of you know the amount of time that it takes for a company to get to being the hundred million dollar business mm-hmm. that VCs want, um, you know VC is not sort of the uh, immediate and obvious uh, answer necessarily for every edtech company. Uh, one of the biggest challenges I have found speaking to startups over the years is you come up with a great idea, you have a good team, you have the capital, and you're off to a strong start, and then comes the time when you have to start scaling. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about scaling uh, your operations and, and what are some of the challenges you anticipate and how will you deal with them? Right, and I think scaling is something that I've uh, you know looked at also in my previous startup roles um, at Jetsetter and so on. So I think... Um, the, the scaling has two aspects to it. There's a product side, and then there is the the distribution and business side. Uh, you know, from a product side, it's um, making sure that your your infrastructure can can handle um, as your users grow. And for us, one of the big things is with with the cloud. And you know, we're we're right on Amazon Web Services, mm-hmm. um, and so that's something that in today's world is is much more easy for startups to do than it used to be. Where you ten years back, where you had to go buy you know big servers and and try to scale <laughs> that way. Um, but I think that has really helped us being built on on, on the cloud. And then uh, from a you know from a product perspective, the other thing we keep in mind is uh, the as I mentioned, international markets and being able to adapt the product quickly uh, as you grow and scale to different languages and and different um, you know requirements for different local markets. I, I, I see from the website that not only is it the education component, but you also have an element of, of trying to 
have kids better understand giving back to their own communities as yeah. well yeah. with a with a, uh, a piece called Kids Make It Right. Tell yeah. us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Kids Make It Right was really sort of, you know, um, born out of um, a mission that I had uh, to to make education truly meaningful. You know, I was really motivated by uh, what Nelson Mandela said about education's the most powerful weapon to change the world. Yeah. Um, and, and the kind of education he was referring to is not just filling heads with uh, facts and figures. Um, and, and so you know, I, we have a six C's framework which talks about skills beyond just the core content skills, critical thinking, creativity, and so on. And I think a really important seventh C that is often missing is compassion, um, which I think helps us be better individuals, which is ultimately the goal of education. And so with the Kids Make It Right program, you know, we have, um, we picked one specific aspect which kids can really relate to, which is the environment um, mm-hmm. and helping animals and people around them, which is very accessible to elementary age kids. Um, and, and we created content and games that help them understand the impact of things like plastics and trash on the environment, on the food chain, and then ultimately on our own health. And, uh, and it, you know, we, we've been really amazed with the response from kids. Well, the, the other part to it is also the fact that, it, especially when you're starting with kids at a younger age, that you're trying to hopefully ingrain in them some ideas, some mindsets that they will obviously take with them all through their education process, whether it be middle school, high school, college, and then obviously onto their onto their professional lives as well. Absolutely, and I think this is you know as you said, rightly said, uh, you know, elementary and early childhood is really where you set that foundation. Uh, what are some of the big challenges that you have faced in in uh, you know uh, starting and scaling the venture? I think uh, probably every entrepreneur goes through a time when uh, some period of doubt whether this is going to work or not work. And especially when you look at statistics, like the mortality of startups is almost 70 percent. 70 percent don't make it. Yeah. Uh, so how, how, how do you prepare both mentally and operationally for those kind of near-death experiences uh, and, and ensure that uh, you, know, you overcome those challenges? Right. Uh, and that's, I think, crucial to, to building a startup. And one way that I always, you know, have approached it and kind of um, have uh, framed it for my team is um, think of this as having sort of key hypotheses that you're trying to validate. And so every um, you know quarter, we're not just saying we know this works and we're just going to go do this, but we're doing this because we want to learn quickly. Um, and so part of that, by definition, then is learning what won't work as well, not just, uh, you know, not just saying I have a hammer, where can I find a nail? Um, and and so um, that's that whole lean startup or MVP approach where you're constantly getting out there, learning and evolving um, is, is really been important. And, you know, we've had um, points where we've had to make pivots and that's been crucial. Uh, could you explain what some of those pivotal decisions have been and, uh, and, and what their impact has been? Yeah, I think one uh, that was an important one is, so initially when we went to market, I think of it as there's three ingredients in the recipe. There's technology, there's content, which is the actual educational material, and then yeah. there's distribution. Um, and our initial go-to-market was focused on, you know, we always focused on technology, which was our strength. Um, and we initially partnered with uh, publishers who had content. We also had some customers who had uh, shows on Disney Junior. Uh, and we created these uh, apps, which were educational. Um, and then we were we went direct to parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we again, that was a great way to get to market quickly and learn what's working and how to improve your product uh, because you don't have to be slowed down by school sales cycles. But yeah. we learned quickly that uh, with education, at least in the U.S., and this is very different internationally, bulk of the spend is at schools. Uh, it's not private spend, but I think that's completely, it's quite a bit different internationally. Uh, but the other thing we learned is that, um, you know, with apps, and just the way the the world of apps has evolved, uh, you know, getting people to pay, even though our app was 
two and a half times more engaging. And, you know, uh, once people found it, they loved it. G- getting people to pay is not an easy challenge, um, especially yeah. with apps. We've almost come right. to expect apps to be free. Um, and so that made us really think about, uh, you know, focusing on our technology and being more B2B rather than B2C. But there's also the element of the fact you mentioned about uh, the education within the schools. But the fact that uh, that education has become something as a component outside of schools, parents obviously playing a larger role in making sure that their kids are learning not just in that nine to three time when they're in the schools that they're doing it at home. Absolutely. So it so it opens up a, a lot of other doors for for startups like yours to be able to to make an impact uh, on, on the ed tech space, but also on kids as well. Absolutely. I think that, you know, learning, in fact, it's interesting that, you know, majority of a child's time is not actually spent in school. If you include yeah. evenings and weekends and summer and so on, uh, you know, almost um, 70% of the time is outside. And so how do you continue that learning everywhere? Prasanna, nice meeting you. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Thank and- you. Prasanna Krishnan, who is a founder and chief product officer of SmartyPal. And as we continue with our coverage of the Wharton India Economic Forum, we talk about economics and policy from people that were involved in a panel discussion on that earlier this morning. We welcome in Nisha Biswal, who is president of the U.S. India Business Council, Rick Rosso, who is a senior advisor and uh, Roshwani chair in the U.S. India Policy Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and also Josh Fellman, who is a former head of the IMF in India. Great to have you all with us today. Thank you all for coming over. Yeah, thanks for having us. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. What What is the state, uh, as each of you see it, the relationship between the United States and India on, on the business perspective? Nisha? Well, I think India represents a very significant opportunity for increased uh, U.S. trade and investment. And as you start thinking about um, Asian economies becoming the drivers of global growth over the coming decades, India, with its uh, growing middle-class population and growing uh, consumer class, represents a very big opportunity. But it's still a country where um, a lot more can be done to create ease of doing business and pathways for growing trade and investment. Josh? Yeah, I'll pass on this. Okay. All right. Rick? One of the most surprising aspects is the fact that uh, Indian companies actually are coming to the United States in a lot bigger way than they did 10, 15 years ago. So, you know, for instance, you do it through acquisition. Uh, Tata, one of India's large conglomerates, buying Jaguar and Land Rover, or uh, a lot of Indian IT companies, TCS and HCL making investments here, Uh, tractor manufacturing, things like that. So it's becoming more of a two-way street. So they're looking at the U.S. market as critical. India's upper-end companies are very much able to come and compete with the best companies in the United States. So it really creates a two-way street they didn't have before. I've mentioned this before, but it is unique when you talk about India and the fact that you do have you know, 1.3 billion people in that country, that there are elements of it that, that are still considered to be an emerging economy at this point. Yeah. You know, India is a conglomeration of 29 states, and uh, state leaders actually have a bigger impact on India's development trajectory than the central government does. So you have a state leader, uh, a good run, uh, reforming, uh, opening up the economy. They can create a huge bump in growth for that state. And another state, which is driven more by basal politics, things like that, maybe more appealing to the to the to the uh, to the voters uh, not taking long-term decision making and that hurts long-term growth so some states you've got per, inc- per capita income levels that are two or three times higher than the worst performing states Nisha? And I would say, you know, India is an emerging economy in the sense that uh, so much of its growth is still ahead of it. It's uh, they say that seventy uh, percent um, of the infrastructure of the India of twenty thirty has yet to be built. So 
you know, there is so much that is yet to emerge. And yet at the same time, it is one of the largest economies in the world. And at this point, the fastest growing large economy in the world. Where do you see the optimism as India as a whole right now, Josh? Well, I, I, I think it's from, from, from all the things that, that have already been mentioned. I mean, you, you have a very large population. Uh, the economy is growing very rapidly at this point. Uh, it's uh, the second largest English-speaking uh, population in the world. Uh, uh, they're very used to the British and American legal system. Uh, so it's very, it's very easy for India, if it wants, to integrate with the rest of the world. And that, that creates opportunities, as, as, as Rick was just saying, not just for people to come into India, but also for Indians to go out and, uh, and run companies abroad. I mean, it's, it, it's, very, it's very, very striking, for example. I mean, you, you can't really imagine that, uh, that, that a Chinese company could, uh, could do what Tata did with Jaguar Land Rover. Just unimaginable. And it, it, it happens be, because of the cultural affinities between India and, in, the, in this case, the U.K., uh, that, that really don't exist in, in so many other countries. But when you think about it from, from the U.S. perspective, looking at, at India, and I mentioned this earlier, when you see companies like Walmart and Amazon starting to see interest in that, and obviously they are two of the biggest retailers that, that we have in the United States, is there an expectation amongst the three that we are going to continue to see that type of growth, that type of, of wanting to be a part of of the Indian market, obviously depending on how the relationship plays out between uh, between the U.S. And, and the government of India. Absolutely. The Indian market is a uh, tremendous opportunity for growth for American uh, businesses, for American producers. And that's why you see the interest not only from, from the big retailers like Amazon, e-retailers like Amazon, Walmart, and the Walmart investment in, in Flipkart, but also American life sciences companies, you know, manufacturers of pharmaceuticals or medical devices, American consumer products companies like Procter & Gamble, American uh, American companies like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, um, you see tremendous interest in being able to be part of that Indian growth story, to invest in India, but to grow uh, that market. And as Rick said, it's a two-way street. You see more and more Indian companies also looking to be part of the U.S. growth story and invest in the United States as well. And I'll ask you to add on to that, but also the the, the component that I think is important to the story as well, surrounding infrastructure yep. in, in India and the build-out that, that is going on right now but needs to continue to go on in the years to come. India is still a very difficult place to do business. American firms get there, uh, and even though there is English and common law and things like that, it still operates in small ways. But uh, the question is, you know, in 20 years, do you expect it's going to be a lot larger? Do you expect it's going to be even easier to do business? Everybody says yes. Do you go in now? And risk, you know, the kind of difficulties that you face, or do you wait another ten years? Yeah. A lot of more companies are deciding that now is the time to do it. Sometimes they need to tweak the product or service a little bit. I mean, you mentioned Walmart and the acquisition of Flipkart. It's one of the first major markets where Walmart is going to be most well known as an e-commerce company first, yeah. and then a small network of stores that they're building out at the same time. So, smart companies go in and realize that sometimes the opportunity you find isn't even the one you were looking for. Well, when you talk about like monetary policy, what have been some of the things you've seen? Josh, in your time over in India, that have really kind of started to to spur some of this growth. Well, uh, of course, the uh, the biggest impetus was, was the decision in 1991 to to liberalize the the economy, 
and as as Rick was just saying, I mean, it's it's still got a long way to go, and and one 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 does need to to be to be careful just to to sort of circle back to 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 the problems of problems of entry. Um, e- even the Indian firms that have uh, invested in infrastructure over the past decade, uh, most of them have have actually done very very poorly. Mm-hmm. People a decade ago, people thought. Uh, as as Nish was saying, infrastructure you can't miss in India, but it, it turned out you you can and you can miss very very badly. And now all, all uh, a lot of these companies have ended up in bankruptcy, and they're now being auctioned off. and And that's another thing which is very very sort of interesting that none of the bidders in these bankruptcy auctions have been foreign firms. Uh, foreigners are, are are still for for whatever reason very very reluctant. To, to head into particularly the the, the infrastructure uh, space, but but other other spaces are are well and truly liberalized, and uh, uh, any anything to do with uh, IT, for example, uh, and uh, and there and and then it becomes much easier to to make an entry. That's why, for example, Walmart has come in as an e-commerce firm rather than as a physical firm. It's much easier. Right. Right. To 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 invest as an Indian or as a, as a foreigner uh, in in uh, e-commerce than in physical commerce. Rick, you you helped start the uh, the Indian State Union uh, Urban Initiative. Uh, tell us more about that and the role that that it has played in this entire growth process. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, Indian states collectively have a lot more uh, impact on India's development trajectory. And yet, uh, India is such a complex place that for a lot of foreigners, and in fact, even a lot of folks in New Delhi. Uh, they forget that states are this important. And so we've been trying to do some some good work on on trying to pull out what are states doing to improve their local economies. It's a very opaque environment. And sometimes it even helps being an outsider, you know, somebody based outside of India where you don't suffer the political pressures of saying one state is better than the other. So uh, this goes back to when President Obama was still in office and India made this really big commitment on renewable energy as part of the uh, Paris Agreement on climate change. But uh, New Delhi signing an agreement on that is not the same thing as seeing it done in practice because state governments control their electric power grids. So the State Department uh, had come in as a partnership that we have on trying to assess what is actually happening at the state level on improving their electric power grids and inducting renewables. And then what are the roles that American institutions, U.S. state governments, U.S. universities, can come in and help Indian states meet those objectives? So it's a fascinating new approach, very much from the ground up rather than kind of looking top down. Well, Go ahead, Nish. Just, uh, you know, the thinking at the time, and I was in the uh, Obama State Department when we um, pushed on this, was that, look, increasingly um, the relationship has to move beyond capital to capital and really start connecting where the opportunities lie, exactly as as Rick was saying. And so for American companies that want to invest in the energy sector, the investments are not in New Delhi. And the the actual projects are not going to be in New Delhi. So you have to be able to disaggregate India into those opportunities and to be able to have some way of engaging that larger, broader uh, landscape of the states and urban uh, geographies where the actual investment opportunities are going to be standing up. And, and the other part to it, and we mentioned this earlier, is the fact that part of the relationship that the U.S. and India have right now is based around the military. And obviously that's an economic component, but it is still, it's more of a policy component as well. 
Absolutely. So we think we tend to think about India's importance as being a strategic and security partner, which is absolutely very consequential. Um, You think about the Indian military, its defense capacity and, you know, our investment in supporting India's modernization of that defense capacity becomes a huge uh, leverage for um, ensuring the security of the seas across the Indo-Pacific without necessarily having the U.S. carry the burden for all of that responsibility. But on the other hand, it's also important to understand that the geopolitics of Asia are driven by the geoeconomics. It's the trade routes. It's the commercial opportunities. It's the building of infrastructure and creating energy and digital connectivity that is the big game and the long game in Asia. And again, the U.S.-India relationship, the economic partnership, becomes strategically important as well as an economic opportunity. Do you think the want is there by both governments at this point to really try and look to expand that relationship even further? Or is is it to a degree maybe even a, a set of baby steps right now? I think it's both. I think there is ambition in the long-term game here on both sides. Um, In the short-term, politics drive a lot of the short-term decision-making in both countries. And right now, we are at a moment in our politics, uh, not only in the United States, but around the world, that tend to be more populist and anti-trade. And so you're seeing right now more in the category of baby steps or kind of... uh, um, managing the status quo rather than big leaps forward on trade. Right. Well, you, you asked before that, too, on the security front, and, and I'll kind of touch on that a bit, where I think, um, I think 10, 15 years ago we were hoping uh, the partnership with India would be a true global partnership, and we put a lot of lines in the water on cooperation in Africa and far-flung corners, and we didn't always find India acting on that as much as we kind of hoped. Um, so people feel this knee-jerk back to India non-alignment. Maybe they're not ready to partner with the United States but actually on Asian security. So I think it's a little bit less of a wide partnership globally than we were thinking about 10, 15 years ago, yeah. but it's deepened considerably in Asia. And uh, you know, economic to some extent, as Nisha mentioned, but security. India looks at the threat that China poses in its own neighborhood now, and they think, who can I work with to try to make sure that I keep space and autonomy even in my own neighborhood? And the United States is a natural partner for that. So we found some really interesting ways to begin to work deeper in Asian security than we had been thinking about just uh, 15, 20 years ago. Josh, your final thoughts, for, especially from the monetary policy side? <laughs> no, I, I, I think one, one shouldn't lose sight uh, of, of the fact that uh, India is facing many, many challenges. And it, while, as Nisha was saying, I mean, the, the long-run tra- trajectory – of relations, for example, between India for the long-run trajectory is India as an economy, long-run trajectory of relations between the U.S. and India is 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 clearly in the right direction. Yeah, but there there are many many problems uh, that 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 India has to sort out uh, internally uh, r- r- right now uh, that 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 the government is is faced with. I mean, even e- e- even if you if you just talk about the things that have happened over the past two days. There's huge tensions between the government and the central bank. There's a huge uncertainty about how, how to resolve a, a massive problem of non-performing assets in the banking system. Uh, their, uh, their non-banks are, are under tremendous strain. The rupee is under tremendous strain. Uh, all, all, all sorts of short-term problems uh, are, are facing the government, which is diverting the, the government's attention away from these longer-term issues. The, the, that we were discussing today. 
Great having you all with us today. Thank you very much for stopping by. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Nisha Biswal from the U.S. India Business Council, uh, Rick Rosso, who is with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Josh Feldman, who's the former head of the IMF in India. That'll do it for us for today and for the week. We'll be back with you on Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Many thanks for everybody putting the show together. We will see you on Monday. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.